Hello, TSF family. We wanted to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and for your hard work to love yourself more and for your feedback. Can you believe it's been three years that we've been doing this spiritual fix and it has been such a beautiful labor of love for Anna and me. We have loved doing this work. We've loved hearing from you and we love exploring ourselves and each other alongside our listeners. We wanted to put out the call for three ways that you can help support us to support you. One, we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Two, drop us an email and let us know how much the podcast means to you. And three, you can donate monthly or even just once to our PayPal patronage. Every little bit helps and we are so grateful to those of you who have donated already. Thank you. You help make this podcast possible. Thanks, y'all. You can go to our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com for information on how to pledge as well as to email us. Today on this episode of This Spiritual Fix, we are talking about communicating with your loved one, all the different tactics that we use to blow up arguments, as well as what you can do to be a better arguer. This Spiritual Fix. Two Mystical Mamas Hacking the Self-Help Game. With Anna Fiddler. And Christina Wilson. Welcome to this fifth episode of This Spiritual Fix, in which today Anna will be talking about how to communicate with your loved one. It's a book report day. It is. And and let me just set the scene here. Anna... (laughs) Anna, in all of her great organization, is looking at a binder that has printed out pages that are in little plastic folder holder <laughs> things, and and it's like paper protectors. It's paper protectors, and they're organized. They're cliff notes of every book I read over the pandemic. It's so amazing and adorable, and I'm I'm just like so utterly impressed by. But your I have no Virgo in my chart. That's what's even more impressive. Oh, that's crazy. Well, I can I can relate to that because I have a very fiery personality, and I'm literally not a single thing of mine is in a fire sign. So I get that. Well, I have Saturn and Virgo, but anyways, yes. Well, I guess, I guess what we could talk a little bit about relationships and the pandemics, you know, the pandemic makes or breaks a relationship as you, you know, I, I've heard of people who need to get a divorce and now talking about divorce. I hear of people ending engagements. I've heard of people just deciding to get married. I've heard of couples getting back together, um, exes like divorced exes reuniting and, and all sorts of things are coming about during the pandemic. I really think it is, you know, strike when the iron's hot. It's a lot of heat. And there's also a lot of catalytic energy in the sense of like, you get a lot of start or end or start for an end or any of those different things. Like it's, it's all really important in that way. Like, um, even just strange couplings of, um, a relative of mine is, uh, renting their house cause they're going to be moving away for a while and they literally have like four adults just moving in together because they, they all lived in separate apartments and they wanted to be in the same house. So they, they rented a really big house together and it's like friends. Awesome. And you're like, okay, cool. That's a different kind of relationship. And it's a, it's, you know, adult roommate sort of situation, but. Sounds fun to me. That's the best part about college. Right. Isn't it? It really was, was the living together part. Yeah. I'm the kind of person when I am in 
crisis, I will read a lot of books. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, before I met my husband, I was involved with my then love of my life and things didn't work out. And when we broke up, very heartbreaking. What did I do with all that heartbreak? I went to the library and I checked out every single relationship book on the subject. So my favorites were Men Are From Mars, Women Are For Venus, Mars and Venus on a Date, What Are Your Five Love Languages, Are You the One For Me by Barbara DeAngelis, which I am convinced would have been a bestseller had the cover just not been so damn awful. But a lot of those books really helped, helped me, and I swear they prepared me to be the woman I became and attract the mate that I did. So I am like really grateful to books when it comes to relationships. I really think, I really think like we don't get crash courses in love, romance, communication in school. It it, there's just, it's things we just don't get at school in university, whatever. So we can supplement with books. So during the pandemic, when the pandemic started, my husband and I actually had a huge fight right before the pandemic, which got resolved. And so pandemic has actually been really good for our marriage because we resolved some major stuff in February, Mm -hmm. but all the same, I'm like, I don't know what propelled me, but I read like five communication books at the beginning of the pandemic. Go ahead. I remember. What was it? You were like, I am so good at researching stuff about myself. And yet I have not actually taken my research skills to figure out how to better my relationship. And then you quoted the same thing. You were like, I remember after I broke up, I like dissected my relationship by learning about all this stuff, but I haven't done it to actually make my current relationship better. Right. And then the big, like the big resolve my husband and I had in February, right before the pandemic was because I communicated in a totally different way. And I finally got a a point across that I had been trying years to get across. I finally got it across. And I'm like, because I just changed my communication. I didn't change the message. I changed my delivery. And it worked. So I'm like, let me figure out what did I exactly do there? Like, what did I do? Mm -hmm. Let me, let me try to dissect what happened. Like, how did that actually work? Yeah. And I dissected it and I figured out what I did. And it's in this book report today. You know, I have to say, I think one of the things that helped that, and I think it's one of the things that's probably helped both of us is that like, we both massively dealt with codependence, like longstanding codependence that we had both been exhibiting, right? Right. Because... Right. And codependence is actually not an issue. It's a coping mechanism to the abandonment wound. You heal your abandonment, the codependency falls right off. Right. Codependency in a nutshell is all about... I am deathly terrified of being abandoned. I will abandon myself in order to avoid abandonment from others. Yeah. And I will then hold you responsible for not saving me. Yes. Because I am not saving myself. So codependents usually will like fixate on something. Like the quintessential one is the alcoholic or the drug addict, right? Let me focus on all their problems. Let me externalize everything onto them. I don't have to look at myself at myself because there's a lot of self-abandoning me. I'm not going to deal with my own shit. I'm not going to heal my own shit. I'm going to heal you. And then I'm going to get mad when you don't try to save me. Yes. That's codependency in a nutshell. And, and you don't have to be married to an alcoholic to experience that. Like 
I know like people pleasing, people pleasing is a huge codependent behavior. Like, let me just be that chipper, extra sweet neighbor and go the extra mile and do this and do that. Like that's codependency. Like needing others approval of you is a codependency thing. Yeah. Or I'm going to give you a whole bunch of gifts. I'm going to continually gift you with things and I'm going to continually do this kind of stuff because I need your gratitude. And so I'm going to try and stimulate it in you as opposed to just finding it in myself. I'm going to swallow my needs and my opinions at the expense of abandoning myself because I get, you know, your validation. And that's more important. That's codependency. Yeah. So the book that really opened my eyes up to codependency, phenomenal book. It's called Women Who Love Too Much by Robin Norwood. And she really helped me understand codependency was not about dating an alcoholic. My husband doesn't even drink. I mean, it was nothing about that. It was about me abandoning myself and overperforming, overperforming for everybody. Like, let's watch the Anna show. What's she going to do now? How many jobs is she going to juggle and houses is she going to clean and be that perfect mother and da, 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 da. Like, you know, just fucking I'm done with that. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. The communication thing happened before that. It did happen for that. So mm-hmm. today for our book report, I read a lot of relationship books. And when I say read them, I say I put them on speed speed audio and listen to them on audio and I speed them up so I can get through them quicker because I ain't got time for reading a book. That's just me. So the book I'm going to talk about today is called Couple Skills, Making Your Relationship Work by Kim Palag, Matthew McKay, and Patrick Fanning. This is a 325 page book. I think it took about four hours, five hours on audio when I, I, I think I, I put it on 1.25 speed. Mm-hmm. The crux of the book is just basically learning how to be a better listener. And we all hear about active listening, like I feel statements, but there's a lot more to it than just that. So I'm going to talk about the first one, which is the listening blocks that people have. And I love this because we can all recognize the blocks that we, that we have when we're listening to others. The first one is placating. That's quickly giving the other what they want. Rehearsing is you're not actually listening to the other person. Instead, you're coming up in your head what your comeback's going to be. I think we've all done that. Oh my God, I do that all the time. Judging, um, that's not even listening to what they're saying. It's jumping to judgments about what they're saying or who they are. Daydreaming is just tuning the other out completely. Filtering means only hearing what you want to hear to support your belief bias. Mind reading is imagining what they are really trying to say and not hearing what they're actually saying and saying, oh, you mean this. Like that's the mind reading one. Sparring means you just counter whatever they say, meaning they say the sky is blue. Oh, no, it's not. You just, you're just right there sparring like you're going to give them the opposite. Yep. Uh, derailing, which is not letting them finish what they're saying, meaning you are distracting, derailing, taking the conversation elsewhere and interrupting, which is the obvious one, which is interrupting. So those are the main, the main listening blocks people have. What do you think are yours, Christina? Oh God. Like all of them, (laughs) uh, mind reading really bad about that one. Being a psychic intuitive makes it really hard because a lot of the times I can actually mind read and it's just been happening more and more and more as I've kind of become more and more empty of all of the BS that I've like been carrying, but like, I will definitely have multiple experiences where like, I will know about something before it's supposed to happen or like a great example. 
for some God knows reason in the middle of December, I was just like, I really, really want a piece of jewelry. Like this, like never, I've literally not, I've been like, maybe like, Oh, that'd be nice. Like it was, it was like a one on a scale of one to 10 of like, maybe like a two of wanting to, to get at this piece of jewelry. Right. And so I, all of a sudden it launched up to an eight in the middle of December. And I was just like, Oh my God, I want a piece of jewelry. And I just went start searching. I just went searching all around, like looking for different types, like what kind of what kind do I want? Like planning on it. Da, 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 da. And then I even mentioned it to Luke, which was crazy. Cause I would never have done that. Turns out come Christmas day, he got me a piece of jewelry and he bought it the day that I started obsessing about jewelry. So he, I was just reading him from afar because he was searching on the internet for the same things. Right. And so like he, I remember him, he was just like, I was so worried that you had gone and done something and gone bought, bought something when I got you something anyway. Right. So like long story short, it's kind of funny, but you know, it's like that kind of thing happens all the time where it's just like in the air and you can't really hide it. And then it, it comes across as other things. So mind reading when it comes to listening. For me, it's probably filtering, only hearing what supports your belief bias. Like the person will say 20 wonderful things, one thing that supports my whatever. I'll focus on that one little thing. Yeah. I'll do that. I can definitely see that. I, I can see uh, I what I can do sometimes is filter to rehearse. Like I filter and rehearse at the same time. Like in the sense of like you're rehearsing what you're saying and then you're like, you've been rehearsing for so long that the, the the conversation has moved somewhere else, but you're still like trying to figure out the thread of like, how are you going to justify saying the things that you've just been rehearsing for the last five minutes? Right. Well, the point is just recognize what you do so that when you're in an argument, you can just observe that you do that and accept that you do that and hopefully be mindful and stop doing it. Um, listening tools to cultivate to be an active listener means listening fully, clarifying when you don't understand something, paraphrasing back what you think you heard, and then only then providing feedback. Like, don't be so quick to respond. Like, really hear them out, really listen, say, hey, what I'm hearing is you think blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that reminds me of our friend Robbie's fight rules, right? Oh, we're going to have a PDF link to a marriage contract. Oh, sweet. Okay, cool. So go ahead. But, yeah, later yeah. on in this, we'll talk about the marriage contract that our shaman, Robbie, told mm-hmm. us about. Yep. So there are three different exercises to discuss in the book to improve listening. One is taking t- the taking turns approach, whereas you set a timer, you're going to speak for five minutes, I'm going to speak for five minutes, and you cannot interrupt anyone unless it's to clarify. You cannot interrupt to judge. So five minutes, timer, five, my turn, my turn, back and forth. Number two, which is great, and I've never done it, it's called the reversal, where your partner pretends to be you, and you pretend to be your partner, and then you debate the topic from that angle. And then you get to play the role of your husband, or your husband gets to play a role of you, and you kind of see things from their point of view, and I really like that one, because it really forces you to let go of your ego, and like really force yourself into another person's perspective. I've not done it, it just seems like a fabulous idea. I've done it with myself. So I've done it. I know this sounds really strange, but like, uh, for years when I was with the, um, when I was like doing goddess retreats up in Indiana, when I lived up there, uh, like we would do all sorts of stuff. Like I would play members of my family who had like said oh, terrible see. things to me or you done pretend whatever. To be them. I pretend to be them. And I've also done it with myself and my higher self. That's actually called family constellation when you do it with your family members, but uh, oh, really? that's another day. Okay. Another topic for another day. Very interesting. Did not know that. Um, 
Exercise three is you need a script. It's you write your requests on paper and you read it to your partner. This is easier to do to stay on task if it's very like emotional and you get everywhere. So you basically write down in this order. Number one, the facts, the unbiased facts, such as, you know, you left your dirty dish on the sink, say, you know, objective fact, feel statement. I feel taken advantage of when, or I feel blah, 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 without blame. Number three is solution. You're requesting like, Hey, can you put your dish in the dishwasher? Four is the self-care alternative, meaning you need to always have a backup plan. Remember that requests and solutions are always freely given. They are not demands. So if your partner's like, Nope, I'm not going to do it. You have to have a self-care alternative such as, okay, I will then put your dishes in the dishwasher, but then I'm going to feel self-care. I'm going to take an extra long shower or whatever it is. Like, I mean, that's a great example, but I love the having self-care alternative. That's great for codependence because I think we get codependents get really wrapped up in not taking care of themselves and to just be like, I really want my parent, my, my, my spouse to watch the kids tonight so I can go hang out with my friends. Well, the self-care alternative, if he says no is I'll get a sitter, you know, like you got to have a backup plan that doesn't involve your spouse. And I really love that. I think it takes a lot of pressure. I agree. It also makes it so that you don't have to have like, because when there's only one alternative and it's either I'll agree to it or I won't, like you can get into situations where the partner will just agree to it and then they won't. Right. Like they won't actually do it. And I like the backup plan idea because it's kind of like reminds you that ultimately you don't really need anybody else and you can figure this all out on yourself and you got your own back. Yeah. So anyways, I love the self-care alternative. So reciprocal reinforcement is something he discusses in the book. They discuss in the book about basically feeding the love tank. So basically figuring out what your spouse's love language is. You discuss it. You make sure like that the love tank is being filled. What degree is it being filled? What can I do to fill it? There's a whole chapter just on identifying the love tank and how you can fill it. So for those who aren't familiar with the love tank and they might or may not go into this in the book, but there's basically five languages of love, which is gifts, verbal, acts of service, quality time, touch. And the sixth one they just came out with, I heard, is, is like is respecting autonomy, like giving people alone time. So basically figuring out what your partner has and giving that to them. Um, identifying distortions. So distortions are what keep us from fully seeing or accepting our partner. There are eight distortions. So it's good to know what you do, or you might do more than one of them, or you might do all of them. So tunnel vision is not seeing the good and only seeing the bad or say only seeing things in a certain way. Assumed intent means mind reading. So assuming you know what they are thinking, magnifying. Oh, I do this one all the time. I just did it. Using superlatives, (laughs) seeing things as always or never. Mm -hmm. And my husband is a facts based person. So he hates that one. And I do it a lot. I do a lot of superlatives. Global labeling is belief bias, assuming behaviors based on past beliefs. So you did this because you're selfish and I know you're selfish because you did X, Y, and Z in the past. So that's global labeling. Good, bad dichotomies is not seeing that there's a lot of gray in the situation and just labeling certain actions or behavior as good or bad. That's a big injustice kind of injustice do that thing. One. Yeah. Fractured logic means you have this belief that this means that, and it might not mean that for that person. I think that's extremely true for people coming from different cultural backgrounds. 
or even different parts of this country, like of the U S you know, you did this, it means that, well, no, they might've been grown up to be taught. This means that we know. Right. Well, I, and I'm from New Mexico where, for example, every time you throw a dinner party at the end of the dinner party, all the women get together and help you clean up. Whoever hosted, like all the women help clean up. That's just like every single dinner party or party I've ever been to growing up was like that. And then I came here to Georgia in the South and no one does it. It took me a really long time to realize that like, they just don't do that here. It's considered rude. You're intruding on the hostess. I didn't get that. And I was like super, super offended that my friends weren't helping me clean up. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to help you clean up. No, you helped. You are. You helped. I think Luke actually Your husband helps actually helps. Husband. Yeah. Your He's husband. the one who helps all the time. No, but, but that was like a, you know, I'm from New Mexico. This is Georgia. It's like a couple States away, but there was a cultural fractured logic. Yeah. I mean, that's a, yeah, definitely. And the same thing in, um, even just the, even just the different, like, tribes. I feel like there's different tribes within like when I lived in Indiana, when you went to a potluck, it was like everyone went to a potluck and then you had a certain, there was a very, very specific in those potlucks. Like no one ever hosted a dinner party. It was always a potluck. You always brought something and then you always had to bring something that was like quality. And it was like, there was all these rules around potlucks there. And down here, like it just doesn't exist in the same way. It was like, it was like whatever hippie culture created was created in that area of Indiana. I lived in was just like, there were rules for potlucks, man. Like you needed to know who the, was the first person to eat. What you always brought silverware with your dish. Yeah. Fractured logic. Fractured logic. That was number six. Number seven is victim fallacy, meaning you assume responsibility for all the problems. Like no, 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 no. It's my fault. That's a very that's a very codependent one. That is a codependent um, one. You you're gonna always assume you're gonna assume you're gonna be the one first to apologize. You're gonna always assume that all the problems were yours. And then number eight is the exact opposite of victim fallacy. It's control fallacy, where everything is your partner's fault. Right. <laughs> and I right. and I know of a couple, and they both do control fallacy, and it is like they're both pushing a rock against each other because they both believe the other one is completely at fault for the marriage failures. And it's, wow. it'd be a lot better if one of them had victim fallacy <laughs> balance it out. Well, no, but, but then it, then it just kind of comes to its no, I'm kidding, but I mean, and then you can have the opposite. I think my husband and I both have victim fallacy. We both are like, no, it's my fault. No, it's my fault. Like we kind of do that. Um, but what I've noticed in the fact is that I actually use control victim fallacy to control the situation because I'm just like, well, nope, it's all my fault. It's it's like becomes a manipulation tactic, even though I genuinely kind of don't know if I believe it, but it's just been like a tactic that I've been able to use my whole life to just be like, yep, you're just going to blame me anyway. So I may as well take all the responsibility and then you can get the fuck off my back. Right. I, I think I, of these distortions, I think I do victim fallacy a lot where I, I'll do, I'll just be like, I just don't want to fight anymore let me just assume responsibility for the whole problem, apologize, and then we can move on. Like, I'm just like, I'm just done. And in the end, I forgive it all anyways. Let me just be done with this. Yeah. So the book says, it has some great exercises, how to notice which distortions you use over and over again, what kind of feelings come up with which distortions. You can make a diary, make examples of the distortions you use, rewrite your distortions, just change the way you think about them. So Again, it's all about awareness. You're aware of what distortions you use. Now that you're aware of them, you can see things differently. Like what was the one that you said you do the most? Probably, probably victim fallacy. Okay. So how could you change that? Or does it need to be changed? I think self-love is how you change that, honestly. Cause I mean, it has to do with codependence and it has to do with like this whole idea of like, actually it's worth 
having the argument and it's worth like, like if you're going to have the argument, then either just let, if you're either, if you're going to go into battle, choose your battle. And if you're not, then just, you need to forgive it and you need to be okay with that. Right. And I think for me, my, my main one is magnifying. So that's using superlatives and seeing things as always and never. Yeah. And I think for me, cause that's a big trigger for my husband cause he's a facts person. It's just to remember that like the feeling that I feel in the moment of always and never, like when I use words for effect, I need to remember that just cause I feel that way, it doesn't make it true. Cause sometimes it feels like you always do this, but that's really not the facts. Like I probably need to like become a little more factual and a little less emotional. Um, I don't know if I can really do that in the moment, but <laughs> well, but I also think that I also like genuinely, like when you're saying that I can just see that like so much of the codependent part or so much of the argument part of you comes from this like little girl and like the little girl, a lot, I feel like in a lot of us, and this is obviously not in the book, but I kind of feel like a lot of us go into a certain age where we learn to fight right? Like, you know, we go back to the age where we learn to fight. And so for me, I was always blamed for everything. Again, I'm in using your story in your in, world, in my story, in my world, I was always blamed for everything. So I go into the victim fallacy. And so I turn into like a 11 year old girl and I'm like, okay, yeah, fine. It's all my fucking fault. Like blah, 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 blah. Like I probably didn't say it like that when I was 11, but you know, and then for you, I can see how, you know, as a kid, like when you learn to fight, like stuff is always and never like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, it becomes that extreme. Like my kid, my six year old does that. My six year, my six year old is continuing. You never let us do anything. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, how I, is that I, even possible? I wonder if there's like developmental milestones that show you where you got stuck according exactly. to, to what distortion you use. So I'm stuck in being a six year old where everything feels always or never. Yeah. No, seriously. <laughs> that, that, that is, that's totally what it feels like. That's that, like when you're saying that I'm like, I feel like we're all getting stuck at a certain age when, you know, we couldn't, we weren't given another method for arguing. Right. Right. Um, and it's really, really hard. Cause I've taught, I've tried to teach my daughter, like, but she's obviously at a development of milestone milestone. And so when she grows up, hopefully I can go back and be like, okay, this is the way, this is the way to best argue. I'm not going to teach you not to argue. I'm going to say, this is how you do. And this is how you accept that you're angry and that you need to discuss it because your feelings are valid, but you also need to know how to fight fairly. Right. And know your audience. Yeah. So the, the, those distortions are a good one. So we're going to talk next about the book talks about negotiating. So in negotiating, you have five different stages, preparation, discussion, proposals and counter proposals. That's another one. Disagreement and then agreement. So there are eight principles to negotiation. The first one is comp- to know that conflict is inevitable. Two is no name calling or threats. Three, two parties will have legitimate but opposing interests. So just knowing the other person's Argument is legitimate and valid too. Yep. Four is separate your feelings. Five is focus on your interests and not your position. Meaning don't be like, I have to win this. So I'm going to not budge because I've got to win it. Like, Mm -hmm. no, focus on the end goal. Like, what do you, what's the outcome you're wanting? Right. Focus on that and not like who's the winner and the loser in the negotiation. Yep. Um, Number six is seek mutually beneficial results. Seven, be flexible. And eight, be persistent. You may need to try out the solution and revisit it again and again. Well, I really like that one because I think we all have a little bit of optimism and we think like the first time we negotiate something, it's going to work. And we have to be realistic and realize, you know what? It might not work. You might have to try it 
five different times, five different ways till you guys find the balance that works for you. Yeah. The thing I love about that, and I remember this is like, this was such an interesting thing because I feel like you and Eric's relationship is, gives me so much insight into what I do and don't do with Luke because we just know each other's relationship so well. And like, I remember you told me that like you negotiated something with Eric like 10 years ago. Right. About the distribution of, of, of labor in the home. Right. And you only just renegotiated. We that. only renegotiated after, after having two children that are, one of them is what? Eight. She's eight. So we re- renegotiated when she was seven. So like I basically renegotiated the terms of our distribution of household labor after realizing that having two children like quadrupled my labor, <laughs> but I didn't renegotiate the terms because I don't know. I guess I was just trapped in my codependent overachieving, overperforming mode. I don't know what it was, but we finally had the conversation. We renegotiated the terms of our, our, our distribution of labor and it's all great now. Yeah. And the funny thing is that like, what I noticed for myself is that Luke and I are continually renegotiating. You're always re- you guys are always negotiating. We're stuff. always renegotiating. But what I recognize is that in the Enneagram, he's a five, which means that he's like a research analyst, right? He's also in a human design. He's a quadruple split definition, which is like incredibly rare, rare. Less than 1% of the population has quadruple split. Like you literally can't have it unless you have like, it's really, really rare. Anyway, so all of this comes down to the fact that he literally needs a negotiation written down in ink. So I was making all these negotiations and I was thinking that I was creating contracts and he literally had no idea. So he would go against them annoying you, but it was simply because to him he needed them written down. Exactly. So you write them down now. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. All right. We're moving on. We're going to skip the part about problem solving we're going to go to conflict resolution. There are eight adversive strategies to resolving conflict. So you never want to use coercion, shame, or guilt to get the other to do what you want them to do. That's a given. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just start there. <laughs> okay. That means never saying, I mean, it's funny because we actually probably do it to our kids all the time. You wait, use shame, coercion, or guilt? Mm-hmm. Probably. Yeah. So I try not to. I'm probably doing it all the time. I I think I'm doing it all the time because I don't know. I I don't know. Coercion a lot. Coercion is what I'm talking about. I don't do do shame and guilt so much, but coercion. I think when I was more codependent, you'll get a candy. That's exactly it. Bribing. Bribing. And I know that I used to do it when I was more codependent in my particular flavor of codependence. I definitely did more guilt. You hurt me. Are you actually going to say hi? That really hurts. How could you, you know, like I would actually do that. Um, but yeah, coercion. Whew. Yeah. Um, okay. So these are the eight adversive strategies. We'll talk about motherhood in another, another episode. I know. I was like, that's like a whole <laughs> different topic. Another Pandora's box. Eight adversive strategies. Number one, discounting, which is making your partner's needs unimportant. Two, withdrawal or abandonment. Do what I said or I'm leaving. Number three, threats. Do this or I won't do that. Four, blaming. You make your needs into the other person's fault. Mm-hmm. Number five, belittling, denigrating, which is obvious. Yep. Six is guilt tripping. Again, obvious. Mm-hmm. Derailing, which means switching the conversation focus. And eight, taking away, meaning you will withdraw some sort of support or affection. Right. And I think that's a really, the eighth one, like I don't do that. 
I, I'm not a taker awayer. Like I'm pretty affectionate regardless if I'm, if I'm mad or not mad, like I pretty much stay consistent in my, in my affections, in my acts of service, all that. But I know that that's a big one for men because I hear that from my friends' husband or my friends telling me about their husbands or even their husbands telling me that like they got in a hard argument and now the wife is like, I think men are really, what I mean to say is I think men are really sensitive to the taking away, like when women pull away support and affection. Yeah. But it's also like, how do they not if they're upset? I don't do it just because, I don't know, I think I'm, an, I'm, I a, I'm a codependent person, so I'm going to overperform. But I think it's a very natural thing to do. I do. And I actually once heard a joke that every single man's uh, language of love is touch. <laughs> Like that just across the board, like doesn't even matter. Like, you don't, you, you want to claim to see other things that's actually touch. That was a joke, but like, um, that was a meme of some sort, but I think that I definitely do. I definitely withdraw because it's the only way it's like, it's just another power play. Like it's just another way of doing it. And I, it was always very effective growing up in my like adolescent relationships to do that. Um, and it was like the only thing I knew how to do, but it also hurt me so much that it was like really hard to like, it felt like a self-punishment as well as a punishment of the other person. Right. Yeah. When I first started reading this book, it was around the same time I was doing the Matt Kahn course about blame. I think mine was number four, blaming, where I make my needs the other person's fault. And I had this huge epiphany about blame and not blaming anyone and like taking ownership of my own needs. I don't believe I do that anymore, but that was definitely my go-to adversive strategy for conflict uh, conflict resolution was like blaming like this isn't working and therefore it's your fault and not my fault and I'm the victim and blame 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 yeah I'm really right. I'm really very versatile and <laughs> very <laughs> I can do a, a lot of adversive strategies <laughs> I have a wide range of experiences of being manipulative um I'm gonna like skip through some of this other stuff uh one of them these are just different ways to deal with your partner's anger. There's one that I like a lot, which I'm going to talk about, which is called the timeout, which I feel like is really wonderful, which is you come up with a safe word or a safe phrase. And when that person says it in the conversation, it means the conversation's over. Like you hear this old saying, never go to bed angry, bullshit, go to bed angry, digest it, think on it, work it out when you're better, especially if you're a projector like I am, my astrological code. I need three days to really process something. And if I'm trying to resolve conflict on that same day, it's just a, it's just a bad recipe. Like, uh-huh. let me give myself some time. Go to bed angry. It's okay. No, that's a really, really good point. A human design, if you're emotional, if you're, you have an emotional authority, it takes you two to three days to actually figure out what you're doing and to make a decision. So it's like, if you do try and process something before that and actually try and address something, you're going to be all over the place. Like you're literally, you're whatever you are feeling at that moment is going to determine how you communicate or the facts that you present or your argument that you present. And if you wait for the three days, then you can come back and you can actually say, this is what it is. This is what actually bothers me. And then you don't risk causing collateral damage in the meantime, while you're actually making up your mind. And then, um, and then what I really like about the safe word is, so this is not from this book, it's from a different book, but it says that women can 
deal with stress better than men. And it's just because of the way we are adapted, like to, in order to breastfeed, we have to have oxytocin in our bodies, which means we have to be relaxed, which means that when we're in stress, we still need to be calm because otherwise we won't lactate and our human species is going to die without that. You know, we're going back to caveman times. Similarly, men were wired that if they saw they're hunting or they are in, you know, being chased, they've got to like be able to be on it, on it, on it. So they notice that after arguments and fights, like if you check a woman's blood pressure versus a man, it'll go right back down low right after the argument. And the man's is just going to keep going and going and going. They, they just process stress differently. And so women need to be very aware and mindful of it that when they shut down, they like physiologically need to shut down. Like their blood pressure is through the roof. Their heart rate is through the roof. So the safe word is great. So in our family, our safe word is I'm feeling vulnerable. You can say I'm feeling overwhelmed, but basically when you're saying I'm feeling vulnerable, it's just like time out, no matter how, where the, the conversation is, wherever the argument is, it's escalated, like time to give a break. So if I say, or my husband says, I'm feeling vulnerable right now. It's time to be like, we're done. There's no there's, what is it? There's no, um, so there's no cheese at the end of this tunnel. Like this conversation is just going to get worse and worse and worse. So they're calling a timeout and I love the timeout. So we're going to talk about the marriage contract now. And you have those notes, right? So we can put them in the show notes. Yeah. Let me find the marriage contract. Okay. The marriage contract as a, um, background, uh, came from our, our dear friend, Robbie, who has the, one of the best models for a relationship that I think I've ever seen. Um, you know, she's a shaman and she helps women with their spiritual journeys and he's a a CEO coach. So there are literally two people who are in the prime opportunity to know about their inner states as well as the best way to communicate. And as a result, like I know that I, and I know that I'm sure that Anna and I both are continually kind of like looking at their relationship and being like, Oh, we need to do that in ours because, because they, I feel like they treat their relationship like a profession. Like it's a, like it is efficient and they stick to the rules and like, there's no amateur playing around in their relationship. You never have like a, you never, there's no low blows. There's no, nothing like that. They're right? both, they're both bringing adults. their all. They're bringing their all and they're both 100% adults. Of course, that's an outside perspective, but yeah. They've done a lot of inner child work, I guess. Well, so Robbie has given us, and we will share it in the PDF, marriage contracts, a.k.a. rules of engagement. She's got five rules that she lives by, and I think they are great. Mm -hmm. And you can add or take away from your contract as you wish, but I feel like this would have been a great thing to have when we got married, like just knowing how are we going to argue. So number one is... The angry person gets the floor until they're done. Meaning if you're, if you're angry, you get to talk and talk and talk till you say it's the other person's turn. Number two, no name calling, yelling, or character assassination. Number three, no using up past behaviors or arguments. Like if it didn't happen in the last 24 hours, you cannot talk about it. Yeah. Cause you've already resolved it. Seemingly, right. right. And if, yeah. Number four, this was my own that I threw in, it wasn't in her original, which was no using friends or family as evidence to back your point up. Like, I really don't like when you're having an argument with someone and they go, well, I think you're like this. And even so-and-so agrees. Like, don't bring other people into the argument. Like it's really, that's a low blow. I really don't like that. So it's so destructive because then you start to question all of your relationships and And then you were questioned the person who's agreeing with your partner about what a horrible person you are. 
Yeah. It's a massive trigger for me, especially when someone uses someone who I revere or a teacher of mine and they use that as like, oh, well, this person said this about this and like, or about you. And then you're just like, you literally just destroyed one of my relationships. (laughs) How could you do that? Right. Like I'm never going to feel comfortable around that person again until I do some deep ho'oponopono work because, um, I feel weird now. Yeah. And number five is you have 24 hours to bring up something that bothered you. And if you don't address it in 24 hours, you lose the right to bitch about it. That to just explain that one, like, let's say you and your partner get in an argument on Monday, you have got until Tuesday to bring it up. And if you don't, you've got to just suck it up and you got to make peace with it on your own. Now, if you bring it up on Tuesday and that person's like, I've got a deadline, we cannot resolve this till Friday. That's fine. Like you can set a future date to resolve it. But you got to bring it up that it bothered you within 24 hours. I love that time limit one because basically all the crap in the past, when you sign this contract, you're basically agreeing to forgive and forget everything that's happened up until today. It's like Jesus. (laughs) He died and forgave all your past sins. Anyway, um, but I think... That's really important too for this whole idea of like having an emotional authority. If you look in human design, like if you take two to three days to decide something, you need to flag it within the first 24 hours and then don't have the conversation for two to three days after that. So be like, yo, I'm really pissed off that you did this thing and I'm going to talk to you about it on Thursday. Yeah. That's very mature. Yeah, Yeah. it is. It's the best, it's the best way to, to follow your authority. It's the best way to be able to make sure that you're actually doing it. And, and it really, I, I have to say like beyond marriages, I just, I kind of hope that like, it's a great thing to do for families as well. Like anybody, if you have a close relationship or if you have a volatile relationship with anyone who's close to your family, like it's a really good idea to do this because, because yeah. otherwise what will end up happening is, is especially if you don't have the 24 hour rule, like what will happen is that like no one will bother to actually do it. Like no one will bother to bring it up again. And then it'll just, accumulate and it'll snowball and it'll snowball and it'll snowball. And then eventually you just get like pummeled by this massive mile high snowball and you don't know what hits you because you never bothered to, to, to communicate properly and follow the rules of the other of, of settling it. Right. Right. And these tools, yeah, these tools work for, it doesn't have to be romance. Like my sibling and I, we had a falling out of sorts and we did the timer thing where we took turns in like three minutes she talked three minutes. I talked, we just went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And when it was done, we were done. We were like done. And it was so nice to just say what you needed to say and not be interrupted. That was a really good one. Yeah. So yeah. it could be anyone. It is. It, I, I would agree that especially if you're dealing with someone who feels as if they haven't been heard and that their feelings aren't valid, like this is going to be a very, very powerful tool for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the irony of all of this is like, I read these books. I don't think my husband and I had more than one or two fights the whole pandemic. So I haven't really gotten a chance to put it into practice, Mm -hmm. but just talking about it today reminds me of them. So when we do inevitably have an argument, like hopefully we can be better at it. Awesome. All right. Good work. See you later. Thank you, Anna. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of This Spiritual Fix. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a review for us on anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. Make sure also to maybe share this episode with someone who you know may be having trouble with communication. We really appreciate your continued support and we hope that you have an awesome day. 
Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.